This episode is sponsored by Typing DNA, winner of the Paytech Awards Best Smart Payment Solution category. Typing Biometrics Authentication API through Keystrokes Dynamics as a service. Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kamathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey. And Tudor Goitcher, Chief Revenue Officer at Typing DNA. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. No problem whatsoever. Uh, so here we are again. Things have changed since the last episode of our podcast. Uh, like back then, we talked about people heading back to their offices in the UK. But as it turns out, it was a little bit of a false dawn. Um, now in London, we're in lockdown tier two. Uh, never fear, however, as the podcast, as always, will remain tier one in quality. Uh, the topic for today's pod is Authentication Station. We'll be chatting with Tudor about security and fintech, customer experience versus customer authentication, and more. Uh, but first, and as usual, we're going to start off by talking about the big numbers in the news from the past week or so, uh, news which has caught our eye. Uh, Tudor, you're our guest, uh, so you're up first. What, what number has sort of caught your eye in the news lately that you want to talk about? Sure. So I think um, one of the interesting numbers uh, is actually related to the compliance failings uh, like uh, AML and KYC uh, in the first half of 2020, actually uh, resulting in $5.6 billion in fines, according to Fenergo data. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting because AML and KYC are such super important topics to highlight. Um, there's also a news story that we have up today um, that showed that $11.3 billion has been paid by three banks um, mainly. So they have taken the brunt of the $11.3 billion fines this year. And those are Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, and JP Morgan Chase, who have according to Finbold's Bank Fines 2020 report, um, have paid the brunt of those fines. And it's interesting because there was also the FinCEN files leaks that we had in September too um, that have sort of gone under the radar. But it's very clear and important that, you know, AML checks and KYC checks as well are actually starting to get some, some really big fines. But hopefully there'll be a little bit more than just fines because, you know, some of these are, are really quite um, bad breaches. But what do you think, Alex? Anything to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've spoken to a, a collection of, of AML people in the past few weeks, especially um, when the data by Fenego came out and just things around the FinCEN files as well. But um, it seems that the, the the prevailing feeling amongst experts in the field is that um, fines, the fines either aren't enough uh, in terms of drilling down to who is most responsible for the issues, especially when it comes to the FinCEN files, um, or that the fines are not enough in terms of their size, which is interesting because they're only getting bigger. Um, however, I've spoken to people in um, in AML in the UK who've worked with uh, the FCA and, th- and, and, and organizations like that who have continually recommended that the FCA levy larger fines uh, and do so more often. Um, because uh, amongst a lot of these people, they feel that the only option available is to hit the hit the banks where it hurts, which is their back pockets. But the issue is, is that you can't hit them in their back pockets if you, unless you levy substantial um, penalties to them. Uh, 
I think where uh, the FinCEN files is an, it was an extremely unique uh, situation, but I think we're going to be seeing uh, more uh, more fines with larger fees, um, and hopefully there'll be a, a a drilling down into you know the who is the guy who pressed the button. That's that's the thing that I think needs to be looked at a lot more is you know um, finding the person who is responsible for the decision making and and censoring them instead of just censoring a, a large amorphous entity like a bank which has you know thousands and thousands of people working in various different departments um, where they can where they can get away with things by sort of just accepting a big fine. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that that's the way things are, are, are going to be going. Um, anything to add there, Sharon? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about um, how you wrote the story uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was just the crossover between people who are working in these regulatory bodies and also those in banking. So I kind of feel as though there's also that point to, to raise that perhaps we're just seeing fines because at the end of the day, they also want a job in some of these banks and vice versa. So like they want to keep that relationship sweet um, and just pointing at the person who might be hiring you soon <laughs> might not be the way to go. So I, th- I think there's something to clean up there as well is perhaps there should be maybe some sort of ban for either like five to 10 years if you are working in one of these regulators to not then join up a bank, um, mainly because that's 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 kind of day, <laughs> and also from Wolf of Wall Street, as we saw, it's it's not great. It's not great to do that. It just uh, it's repeating past mistakes as well. So, yeah, I just thought I'd put that out there. Yeah, I, I think the issue of regulatory capture is an interesting one, and um, it's one that definitely sees a lot of finger pointing amongst regulators, especially in the United States. Um, but uh, as far as it goes. There, as far from what I've seen, and I remember when I wrote this story, that the, the investigations come up usually with very, with few, if at all, examples of it happening. So there's a lot of uh, accusations being thrown around by these government bodies without any evidence of it occurring. But uh, I mean, it's it's you know, there's no smoke without fire. But I think we'll we'll leave that one there before we get in trouble with any big US regulatory bodies that send me angry emails into my inbox. Um, (laughs) Straight to delete. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, um, well, I'll do do my number uh, this week, which is uh, $5.5 billion. And that's the the estimated worth of the merger between uh, Russian tech firm Yandex and digital bank Tinkoff. Um, which they unceremoniously scrapped in the past week, uh, according to reports the talks stalled uh, less than a month after the merger was officially announced, with Yandex saying in a rather diplomatic statement that the reason for the stop was due to an inability to agree definitive transaction terms. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, in an email seen by Reuters, Tinkoff owner and key shareholder Oleg Tinkoff in case you didn't get the connection there, um, wrote that Yandex was only interested in a full takeover of his bank. He viewed the deal himself as more of a merger. Um, the plot also thickens when you consider a blog from Yandex deputy CEO, and I apologize for murdering his name, uh, Tigran Kudaverdian. He wrote that Tinkov would run his digital bank and also contribute to Yandex simultaneously. Um, 
the deal's scrapping comes a few months after Yandex Yandex went its separate ways with long-term partner Sparebank, or Spare as it likes to be called now, um, as both started to vie for the same customers in the technology space. So it seems that a merger of equals between a digital bank and a tech giant was not on the cards or at all possible. Uh, And I wonder if that could be an interesting portent of things to come. Um, What do you think about that, Sharon? Well, I think the plot think, thickens as well. So I also read from The Bell and also Moscow Times, which say that um, Oleg Tinkoff, as you mentioned, um, is also considering other buyers. Um, so he was looking at mobile operator MTS or its affiliate MTS Bank. So The Bell was citing a financial telegram channel um, and unnamed sources, so all very hush-hush stuff. Um, and they reported that Tinkoff has been in discussions with both parties in parallel for months and has approached half a dozen potential buyers among Russia's top financial players over the last 18 months. So should an agreement be reached with MTS or MTS Bank, the acquisition could be backed with a loan from Spur. So they come up again in, in this story. Um, so it's quite, uh, I think, interesting and the, and the plot will thicken. It's a bit like a, a, a mini drama is happening here for sure, in, in the background, a bit of succession going on or or something. It's all very, very interesting right now as well, I'd say. Plus, we had the CEO of Yandex Money here as well, who was quite candid about the fallout with Spur, which was was quite fun. Episode 11, if you want to have a little nosy around. But yeah, Tudor, do you have anything uh, to, to add about this? Yeah, I think this is um, uh, quite a, quite an interesting time, generally, as uh, a lot of the tech giants are looking to get into the financial space one way or another. Uh, and of course, there's going to be some sparks. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think we will see consolidation uh, in different parts of the world. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, that brings us on to Sharon. Uh, always third, but always best. Uh, we've got uh, a story about Chinese regulatory approval and tech giants. Yes, indeed. So my number is 30 billion. Woo, beating all of you guys today. Um, so AntWin's <laughs> approval uh, from both the HKEX and the CSRC. So that's the Hong Kong Stock Exchange Committee um, and also the China Securities Regulatory Commission. Um, and that's for their IPO offering, which will be in Beijing, as well as um, in Hong Kong. So there's been a bit of tension because people thought, oh, perhaps with the stuff that's been going on and, and the tensions brewing there politically that, you know, one might sort of back away from from them listing in the Hong Kong leg of their IPO. Uh, but it looks like it's all clear. Um, so shares in Ant, um, which some analysts say are valuing as much as 318 billion, which is like insane, could price ahead of the US presidential election on the 3rd of November. And that's according to one of the sources who was talking to the Financial Times. Um, So they also predict that these uh, IPO listings will be bigger than Saudi Aramco's, which was last year with 25 billion. So it's getting bigger and bigger. And we did speak about Chinese firms listing on the domestic market or the US stock market markets, again, in episode 11 of the podcast. Um, And it looks as though, you know, because uh, the US has been trying to put in some sort of stringent requirements and checks um, and accounting standards for some of these Chinese firms that they're saying, you know what, 
it doesn't matter. We're still going to list whether it's domestic or whether it's the US. Um, and it looks like with Beijing's local financial regulatory planning to comb through a bunch of these US listed Chinese firms in order to support them returning to the Asia or Hong Kong markets that we'll see this trend going on. So, so far this year, Exchanges in Shanghai and Shenzhen have posted more than 47.5 billion of IPOs and listings for firms that have shares already trading elsewhere. And that's according to Refinitiv data. That is already the highest annual tally compared with any full year since 2010. And also an unprecedented 27% of the global total, same Refinitiv data shows. So if deals in Hong Kong by Chinese companies are added, the proportion rises to 43%. So China is claiming a record proportion of these IPOs and other debuts. Um, And it looks like their markets as well have bounced back significantly since the coronavirus outbreak started. Um, And it's one of those economies that is really booming considering everyone else is, is really, you know, having it quite rough. Um, So yeah, everything's coming up millhouse for um, Chinese markets at the moment and also, you know, Chinese firms. So what do you think about it, Alex? Sorry, uh, you you caught me out there. I was not expecting the millhouse comments. I'm still giggling about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it goes to show, I think the, um, everyone already knew of the you know, the importance of Hong Kong as a gateway into China and also China's gateway to the rest of the world. Um, but I think this sort of underlines the importance of it. And especially with a, a huge company um, like Ant Financial stepping in with, the, with these massive listings um, shows the, the the dominance and the recovery that China's having right now. And I, I think the timing is certainly interesting um, given China's history with Donald Trump and and you would feel that perhaps a, a listing uh, just prior to an election would be advantageous should uh, we see a, a Biden presidency and the potential for, for market certainty that follows that, uh, especially in China. But what uh, I, I personally, when it comes to Ant Financial and, and, and Tencent as well, I, I, I always think about the fact that uh, about a few months ago, we, had, we wrote a story that um, both are being investigated by uh, the Chinese central bank. Um, for antitrust, in an antitrust pope, the the sort of the conduct of their digital payment services and basically how they are uh, strangling, uh, having a stranglehold over the market. Um, apparently, the People's Bank of China is taking the su- the suggestion in quotes of an investigation into the companies uh, very seriously. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if there's anything coming out of that investigation. It obviously has arrived too late for the the dual listing, um, but uh, it, it's it, you look at these companies which are obviously doing massively well in China, and you can't go to a conference in Europe or the US without uh, a track session being devoted to how they're disrupting um, fintech in the West. And you have to wonder, you know, what, can anything stop them uh, at this point? I mean, Chida, what, what do you what do you think about about this story and about these these two these two mega companies? Yeah, so w- one of the um, very important things uh, for for China now uh, is definitely building up these capital markets. Uh, these kinds of uh, numbers that we're talking about, I don't think would have been truly possible some I don't know ten, twenty, uh, thirty years ago. Um, so and also as you mentioned in the in the context with the uh, falling apart with the U.S. and so on, these things 
uh, are immensely uh, important to them. And you're totally right. So with the um, fintech disruptions coming out of China, each each conference has a, has a track uh, dedicated to that. Um, it's 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 very interesting how much innovation can come out of that region in the fintech space. Uh, and uh, I think the best is uh, yet to come there. Now we move on to part two of the podcast. This is where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. We're going to be talking about authentication, security, and fraud. Uh, before Sharon does her deep dive, uh, it's worth mentioning that Typing DNA won our Paytech Award for Best Smart Payment Solution earlier this year. So it would be remiss of us not to allow Tudor to some time to tell our audience a little bit more about what it is uh, you guys do and your role in the company specifically. So go ahead and give us that introduction, then Sharon will come in with her on-the-spot questions. Sure. Thanks, Alex. So, um, yeah, first of all, uh, we're uh, honored to have received the uh, the award that you mentioned, the Best Smart Payment Solution Award. Um, uh, I'm happy to give you a quick overview of, of what we do. So, Typing DNA is a behavioral biometrics company. Uh, we're headquartered out of uh, New York City. And what we do is we recognize people based on the way they type. This sounds uh, very simple as a concept, but it's uh, relatively hard to actually implement and implement well. So there's uh, actually two things that we focus on. One of them is capturing the way people type and actually defining what you want to capture. Uh, I don't want to go into a lot of technical details here, but uh, just just like your phone has a fingerprint reader, uh, it's it's going to be the same with uh, with uh, typing biometrics. So you need to be able to capture them, and second, be able to understand the samples that you're capturing and use them for authentication. So at the end of the day, what we provide is uh, higher security, compliance with the likes of PSD2 SCA, and better user experience, and all through authenticating people based on the way they type. Uh, I think you also asked me about my role. So yeah, I'm the chief revenue officer, uh, part of the initial typing DNA team. And uh, what, what I'm spending most of my time on are our uh, strategic partnerships uh, and uh, managing our sales uh, efforts. Well, great. Thanks for, for giving us all that wonderful insight. And of course, congratulations on your win. And for those of us that are not well-versed in the day-to-day of security in the financial services industry, it'd be great to break down what authentication is all about, why we use it, and where you think it's going to go. That's a, that's a great question. Um, let me try to break it down just a little bit. So I think it's 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 useful to think in a framework of digital identity and physical identity. And everything usually starts with an uh, with a generation of this digital identity based on a physical identity. Uh, and here I'm talking about, the, the for example, the uh, uh, remote onboarding uh, processes of, uh, of financial institutions or uh, even on-site uh, onboarding. Um, and what that does, it's it's a quite complex and lengthy uh, uh, process. But what it does, it, it is generating this digital identity associated with the physical identity. And authentication 
is basically the next step. The authentication is a simplified version of confirming that link without having to take the user or the customer through the entire journey of onboarding each time in order to match the, their digital to their physical identity. You basically rely on proxies and these are usually uh, authenticators. Uh, they can mainly be of three types uh, as recognized by the industry. So you have the knowledge factors like passwords, uh, security questions, pins, uh, swiped uh, patterns, and so on. Um, then you have the possession-based factors. Um, maybe you're familiar with uh, the tokens that uh, that uh, larger banks use to put out and uh, ship to their customers or uh, getting an SMS to your phone. That's actually a, a possession factor as well. It, it proves that you have that SIM. Um, or even um, software tokens on your phone, uh, which, which are becoming increasingly popular now. And the third type is what you uh, are or how you are. So that's the biometric space. Uh, you can think of fingerprint, facial recognition, voice recognition, but also the likes of typing biometrics, uh, signature recognition, and so on. You, you, you asked me a little bit about where authentication is and where it's going to go. So um, I think authentication today is very old-fashioned. And uh, th this is also due to regulation to some extent, but also due to uh, lack of innovation. So when you think about, uh, we, we talked earlier about uh, digital challenger banks and so on. And when you think about it, there's a lot of effort going into designing digital products, designing digital customer experiences that are top-notch. And once you have completed this huge process of putting together something that makes sense, you basically uh, slap a password on top of it at the beginning or, uh, I don't know, another, another very... Um, traditional authentication method, like let's say SMS one-time password, and uh, that's that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the authentication part remains the worst point in the, in the customer journey uh, today. And there are some initiatives to improve that, uh, but generally the future is towards building better user experience and better security. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there because like, I, I could go on and on. <laughs> of course, and it's really good to see how passionate you are about the authentication space. Um, and have you come against any challenges and pain points when implementing a new authentication method for a client? Sure. So the, uh, typing DNA uh, is focused on multiple verticals, um, including, uh, for example, retail education. But I'm going to focus my answer on the financial space uh, since, uh, yeah, <laughs> given, given the, the, the circumstance today. So I think in the, in the financial space, the first hurdle you have to uh, kind of cross is the compliance hurdle. Uh, so your authentication method needs to be compliant. Uh, but the good thing here is that regulators are lately more open to not narrowing down what constitutes compliance and what doesn't. Uh, and that allows for more innovation, which is, which is great. Um, 
but once you once you overcome that uh, from from where we stand as a typing biometrics provider or a keystroke dynamics provider, these two terms are uh, are basically synonyms. Is uh, first of all explaining to our customers the the character of a probabilistic approach. So let me go back to my previous answer for just a second. Uh, We talked about what you know, what you have, and what you are. Now, what you know, like a password, and what you have, like a a phone SIM, uh, where you receive an SMS, are deterministic in nature. Like you either have them or you don't have them. It's a one or a zero. You have provided the right password or you have not provided the right password. When you move into the biometric space, uh, the entire concept becomes probabilistic. So the, w- w- we as users, we see a one or a zero, or like, are we in or are we out? But in reality, that is usually a score between zero and a hundred. And your your bank or your uh, uh, fintech uh, provider of uh, whatever uh uh, financial uh, yeah, product you're 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 consuming uh, will have to make a decision on whether they're letting you in or not based on a threshold that they set up between zero and hundred. And adding this decision is not always something very uh, very simple. Uh, another thing that is worth mentioning is uh, the the area of uh, security of the data, privacy concerns, and so on, especially when talking about biometrics. Uh, and uh, these are these are very uh, important topics today. Like how how do we make sure that data is secure? How do we make sure that uh, users understand what kind of data is being collected and uh, how it's going to be used and so on? Um, so we basically have, uh, uh, and I'm sure other other companies in this space have a, a playbook on that they share with their with with their customers on how to navigate these hurdles. What is, however, not a pain point, because you asked me about challenges and pain points. Usually when you implement authenticators, one of the big pain points is the fact that you have to change uh, customer behavior. And changing behavior is the hardest thing that you can do. So if you ask uh, a user to perform a new type of authentication, uh, it's it, it's going to be very hard. I look look at the large banks in in Europe now uh, pushing very hard uh, authentication methods methods like uh, uh, mobile tokens, right? And just the amount of issues that they have with the activation of such tokens, the reactivation of such tokens, and getting the users to actually use them how they intended to do that. So changing behavior is very very hard. Uh, what you the, the the beauty about Typing biometrics is that you don't have to change user behavior. Uh, users just type as they always would. Uh, I don't know. They put in pins. They put in uh, passwords, usernames, uh, addresses, uh, account numbers. They, they put in a lot of stuff in, in, in these applications. And anywhere they, they, they type, we can passively run. Um, I, I hope that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. That was really um, sort of a a really deep deep dive and quite insightful. Um, And personally, I've been hacked twice in the past 12 months on two different bank accounts. Um, One entailed biometric protection, whilst the other implemented a 
pin situation, it's hard as a customer to trust that these processes work against ever sophisticated cyber attackers. So how can financial services balance a smooth customer experience, as you spoke about, versus solid data and security protection against fraud? So, um, first of all, uh, Sharon, I'm sorry to hear that you got hacked twice. In I know, months. right? I, I, I don't know a lot of people who actually uh, can uh, can can uh, state the same. Um, <laughs> I'm just uniquely <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe it's okay. just the shopping websites I use. I don't know, but please do be. tell that me. Yeah, sure. So, um, but for, first, let me let me debunk uh, maybe a myth here. Uh, when an account takeover happens uh, or when, when fraud happens in the financial space, it's not always at the authentication level. So getting hacked twice uh, can also have other attack vectors, but it is often uh, uh, the, the, the authentication uh, uh, part that is, uh, is the weak link. So uh, let me go back to your question. So you said, uh, you, you asked me uh, about balancing your user experience with uh, uh, data, uh, like with, with uh, protection, right? For financial institutions. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I think there's, there's a, few important, uh, uh, a few important points here. So in, in, in my personal view, what the financial institutions have as their probably their greatest asset is uh, trust and if they specifically lose this part uh it's going to be extremely hard for them uh to justify their existence even uh and it's uh, this trust is actually one of the one of the competitive advantages for example that traditional banks have over challenger banks Right, so uh, the 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 evergreen question: How many people are actually holding their uh, their savings and getting their, their their paychecks on a challenger bank like Revolut or Monzo or you name it? Uh, and uh, I think it's it's uh, not as many as uh, as do uh, with traditional banks. So for and I think that's that becomes apparent to to traditional banks, and they are trying to make sure that. They maintain that trust. What they cannot do is harm the user experience at the expense of trust because uh, harming the user experience can actually push customers away. So you're 100% correct. Actually, managing these two is uh, is, is a challenge generally. Um, on, on, on how to do it, I think, uh, let me just lay another, another one brick on the foundation. So I don't think that cybercrime... Uh, will go away. Uh, it's like all types of crime. It's just, it's just there, and the best players are a step ahead. It's uh, uh, th- there's an old saying uh, in uh, in uh, in Romanian language actually that says that when you're in the woods and you meet the bear, uh, you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than the people you're with, and it's somewhat similar. <laughs> It's, like it's, uh, it's somewhat similar in the financial uh, space with cyber fraud. So the point is that you have to you have to make uh, as a financial uh, institution or as a fintech, you have to make it not worth the while. So uh, basically, increase the cost of breaching to a level that is beyond profitability, uh, or make that 
balance much much worse than for your competitors or other uh, other people in the field right so if it's going to be harder for me to uh, bridge your systems and i'm going to get 1000 euros out of them uh, i'm going to go for the other option where it's easier and i will still get the 1000 euros um in terms of what uh so te- technology is here to help us and there's a few very important things that uh, uh, that uh, actually kind of make both security and user experience go well together. And they're all passive and non-intrusive ways of detecting fraudulent behavior. One example is behavioral biometrics, like typing biometrics. Sorry, had to mention that. Uh, but then there's other things like, uh, for example, user behavior uh, analysis, like where users click on your app. And there's a lot of companies doing really good, uh, building really good solutions around that. Uh, another thing is, for example, uh, device signatures, right? Which which are completely transparent to the end user. So the, the end user will not have a, a worse customer experience, but they will be better protected. Um, and then there's uh, other things like uh, in, environmental things like uh, um, where is this user logging in from? IP addresses and so on. So actually, bolstering this passive layer of security uh, will actually increase the security without harming the user experience. It's probably the way to go. And we see a lot of financial institutions who are very evolved in their strategies uh, to actually go down that route. And I'm really sorry for the very, very long answer here. Oh, no, you're absolutely you know right in some of this respect. And I am definitely uniquely terrible at possibly handing out data willy-nilly or <laughs> clicking on on the yes i agree third party data stuff <laughs> and maybe somehow some cyber attacker managed to hit me that way but um what's the best advice you can give to both banks and customers to really protect themselves against fraud including me i would love to know um without saying typing dna so what's the best way <laughs> Okay, uh, so uh, I, I'll make it harder and I won't say typing DNA uh, nor uh, typing biometrics. <laughs> oh, challenge. Will, so, will it work? I don't know. And for sure, it, it's going to work. So, uh, let's, so you asked about both uh, banks and consumers, right? So on the bank side, I think we, we covered a bit of this uh in the previous question uh so but generally um trust is what they sell and they have to make it a bad deal for cyber attackers another very important thing is that for banks their customers are their greatest asset but from from a cybersecurity perspective they're very often their greatest liability as well uh because they are uh, yeah, they're they're falling to uh, social uh, engineering sch- uh, schemes and phishing schemes and so on. So uh, I think educating customers is one key point on on how attacks work. And I think I think I think banks spend a lot of time uh, on educating on very specific attacks instead of maybe educating their customers on the general levers uh, and the general pathways that uh, attackers use, which are repeated in in, in, in a lot of attacks. Um, so the education part is one. And the second one 
on the bank side would be deploying state-of-the-art technology. So attackers, they they always get the state-of-the-art or some of the attackers definitely get the state-of-the-art uh, and banks need to get that as well. And I mentioned some of the, of the possible technologies uh, earlier on. Now, from the consumer side, um, this is a very interesting. Uh, it's, it's it's a very interesting point. So, uh, and th- there's a few points of advice that I think uh, can generally help you quite a lot with making sure that you're secure. So, first of all, we should take care of our digital identity just as we take care of our physical identity. Uh, unfortunately, services have not made this possible by uh, uh, making us uh, uh, come up with ever more complicated and crazy passwords that we can never remember uh, and everyone ends up reusing a lot of passwords. Um, so this, this is one behavior that I would definitely uh, advise against. Uh, uh, yeah, and... As as a consumer, think about how careful you are where you put your passport or where you put your physical ID. We're significantly less careful with our digital identities, and when we end up reusing uh, reusing um, passwords, basically the breach in one service will inevitably lead to the breach of all other services where you have reused the password. So. In order, in order to like maybe uh, be very specific, some things that you can definitely do are the following. First of all, identify your master account. Each person generally has one master account. It can be I don't know your Gmail address, your Outlook address, or your I don't know. It probably shouldn't be your work address, but you generally have one account where all password resets go, right? So it's the the one email that you first got or something like that. That one for sure needs to have a unique password that is not used anywhere else that is long really long like 30 40 characters if you can if if you can do it it doesn't have to be it's more important that it's long than that it's complex so uh, there's there's a great uh, graphic going around in the cybersecurity space with a password like horse battery camera something uh, it doesn't have to be complicated it has to be long uh, and making sure that that account is very, very well protected. So you should have two-factor authentication on that 100% uh, with, uh, yeah, so with at least one fa- one second factor of authentication and one backup, like backup codes or anything like that. And this can already put you ahead of a lot of people. And second, not reusing passwords in general uh, would be very well uh, a, a very good idea. And third, um, maybe trying not to fall for phishing and uh, and social engineering schemes. I know it, it sounds a lot easier than, than it actually is, but uh, check domain names. Uh, and whenever something feels fishy online, just don't do it. Like if, if it just feels slightly fishy, don't. It's it's probable that it's some sort of a scheme. Again, I'm going to stop here because I feel like I gave you a, f- a pretty long answer. I think I know where I went wrong now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so so much for that. Sure. 
We've reached part three of the show, and that means it's time for the fintech jail. Uh, Tudor is going to submit an industry buzzword, phrase, or term to Sharon and I, and we will decide whether it should be locked away in solitary confinement. Uh, always remember that the jail is not permanent, nor is it final. Sharon and I are fickle journalists, after all, and some buzzwords could be rescued from our fintech Alcatraz with a persuasive enough argument, or indeed put away for even longer. Um, so, Tudor, what term have you brought with you today that you think should be a banished buzzword? Yeah, so uh, this was a bit of a homework for me. Um, th- th- <laughs> thanks for, for, for assigning me the homework. Uh, and it, it, it might be uh, maybe uh, already popular in the fintech jail, but I think I'm going to go with open banking. Um, I, I feel like the term is really getting exhausted over time. We've been talking about it in Europe for, for a few years, but the concept is actually much, much uh, older and parts of it have been already used in in the US for for a long, long time. So I, I, I think this just needs to become the, the normal and it shouldn't be a thing anymore, the, the transition to open banking soon, soon. Interesting. Uh, Sharon, you're our, our, our official record keeper. Is, is open banking already in, in the jail? No, it's not. Oh, well, there we go. I didn't expect that. <laughs> I think mainly because we've had people who are talking about open banking and <laughs> don't really want to put their job in the jail. Um, but yeah, it's not in the jail. Um, I am persuaded a little bit. What do you think, Alex? Um. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm always biased because I love putting uh, terms in the jail that are just overused by everyone in general. Um, and, you know, as journalists, we report on open banking all the time so much that you sort of get open banking fatigue. Um, and I, I kind of agree that it should be ubiquitous by now. Um, but then, you know, so should cloud computing. And yet here we are in the financial services space. So <laughs> still talking <laughs> about cloud computing. So I, uh, I'm unsure. I, I think, yes. Um I think this could be the one where people we have someone maybe down the line who wants to get it out. But I think I think yeah, why why not put it in there on a? Uh, I don't know, maybe on on probation. I'm not sure. What do you think, Sharon? Yeah, let's let's monitor the situation. Maybe with like a little ankle monitor and let <laughs> it stay in a room. Will it be a fancy room? Probably because it's open banking and it's going to figure out some way to get a fancy room. So let's put it in there. Um, and let's see if someone's going to argue that it, sh- it should never have gone into probation and we'll, we'll dukes it out then. But yeah, I think it's safely in probation with an ankle bracelet. Okay, we'll put, put it in one of those um, very comfortable Nordic open jails. Yeah, so exactly. Open jail for open banking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I didn't even mean that. Maybe I should go to jail. <laughs> it was too easy. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Uh, Thanks to Sharon and Tudor for joining me. Uh, Before we sign off, though, uh, we're going to have some time to plug socials and websites, uh, companies, etc. Tudor, perhaps you'd like to go first? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, first, thanks a lot for for, for having me. Uh, I do hope that uh, a few points were uh, were interesting and maybe uh, uh, usable or addressable uh, right away by by, by your audience. Um, so yeah, uh, again, typing DNA recognizes people based on the way they type. Uh, we have live demos at typingdna.com, uh, and uh, you'll see more and more of us, I'm sure. Excellent. All right, Sharon, where can we find you online? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech, normal spelling, and K-I-T-S, like a football kit, um, just with an S at the end. So it's multiple football kits. Um, And you can also check out the October edition of the Banking Technology magazine. It was a labor of love for me um, because it was our Black History Month edition because it is Black History Month in the UK. Um, So please do check it out. It's got some really interesting insight. It's got um, UK's first Black-led challenger bank as well. It's got an interview there that our reporter Ruby Hinchliff did. So please do check it out so interesting um and also um just keep your eyes peeled for our paytech supplement um so yeah that's the stuff that's coming up for me and of course as regular please do check me out on on linkedin too um yeah that's me cool as for me you can find me on twitter at ad hamilton 91 and on LinkedIn, just by searching my name, uh, don't do it on Google because my name has been an ever, everlasting SEO battle against a Broadway musical and a BBC Weather Woman. Um, <laughs> it might fintech, be worse you, now as well because um, it's on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's awful. I, I am beating the BBC Weather Woman at this time. So uh, at, at the time of recording, I'm doing okay. Uh, as for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com on Twitter at at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our lovely logo, the two Fs. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Thank you very much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode, but until then, goodbye.